Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Emma Forrest on her brilliant new novel, Royals. Emma Forrest has published three novels, the memoir Your Voice in My Head, and edited an essay collection. An Anglo-American currently based in London, she recently wrote and directed her feature debut, Untogether, and today we're going to be talking about Emma's latest novel, Royals. Emma, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me. So, how would you describe Royals? Royals comes from the tradition of great love stories that can't be, that are moment in time, epic love stories. Um, one of my favourite films is Splendour in the Grass, mm-hmm. which is, um, if you haven't seen it, we're seeing Natalie Wood, Warren Beatty at the height of both of their beauties and this just great, tumultuous, life-changing meeting of souls that can't exist beyond that bubble and um, made a big mark on me when I was quite young. So in a weird way, this is my take on that. And what inspired this novel at this particular time? I wanted to write something really optimistic because the world feels so completely out of control. I honestly just wanted to make an offering of of love and kindness and empathy and that it's worth staying alive through it. And and that, I remember um, the day that Donald Trump was elected, my sister tweeted, um, artists, now would be a good time to make art. And it's true, that's, that's why I did it, is there's nothing else I can do except for right now not put darkness into the world. I could put darkness into the world, you know, in a bit when he's gone and I could put darkness into the world when Obama was president, but not. this isn't the right time. And art, I was going to talk about art later on, but as, yeah. as you brought it up, yeah. forms like, you know, the importance of art forms yeah. quite a significant part of, yeah. of this story as well, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, do you know what's really weird is I was thinking about that today because I finally caught up with the remake of Suspiria, which I, I'm sure was very Marmite. I'm sure a lot of people did not care for it. I watched it during the day and it made me cry. Those I, I felt very strongly that it was a piece about um, the power of art and the people whose gift is so extreme that it feels like it's witchcraft. I've heard theatre actors, great theatre actors, seriously mention that about Mark Rylance. Like, Mm -hmm. I wonder if he genuinely is sort of like touched by some kind of deal with the devil. So that film today made me think about the other times that 
any art form has made me cry, you know. And and it's really exciting when you don't quite know why, when it's just completely visceral. Like I remember years ago seeing the Chris Affili, um, you know, elephant dung paintings at, at the Tate, probably in my, I want to say it would have been in my early early 30s or late 20s. And just, it just made me cry. And like, I can't exactly say why. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's always really exciting to me in any form. The story starts with our narrator, Stephen, and his mother yeah. making preparations for a wedding, yeah. which one believes in the first few pages is, you know, is, is, is a wedding yeah. at which you know, the bride is going to appear in their locale pretty soon. But it's not that sort of wedding. Yeah. Tell us about this start. Can I give it away? Yes. So it's the wedding of Charles and Diana. And it's a really cinematic set piece. And um, it was exciting to write a novel after having directed my first film because it just came to me completely differently. I was able to see things far more visually and to understand what a set piece is in a novel because I think previously my novels have at their best been clever or fun, good dialogue, um, sort of, you know, dialogue that's like a big parade that sort of distracts you slightly from the lack of action sometimes. But this was the first one where, because of having made a film, I did. I felt like I had a real breakthrough. Why that time period? Because uh, it's early memory stuff. You know, I, w- I was born December 26, 76. So I vaguely remember the street party. And I remember really clearly the commemorative mug with Charles and Diana on it that we still have in our house. I remember it's really exciting for me right now um, that my kid is getting into the music that was my first memories, like Madness, you know, and Ian Dury. Literally first memories and first fears. My first fear was of Brian Ferry. Seeing him on top of the pops, he absolutely terrified me because why do his eyes close like that when Mm -hmm. he dances and sings? It really frightened me. Um, So, yeah, I was just thinking about first fears and fantasies, really. I was always terrified of people that open their eyes, like Kate Bush. Because that's like death. That's like rigor mortis, right? Yeah, yeah, that's the whole point of Kate Bush is how scary those big, crazed, witchy eyes are in a really... And then you grow up as a woman and go, oh, I loved her so much because she frightened men. And that may or may not still be an option for me. Like, I'm not meant to frighten men. But that is really exciting that a very beautiful woman really disturbed men. As well as being set in that time period, um, obviously Diana becomes a a symbol throughout the book. Um, Both the the main protagonists are in various different ways – I don't know whether I would say look up to her. I mean, I guess Stephen does. I'm not There's sure Jasmine necessarily does, but certainly have a yeah, certainly have a fascination with her, and particularly, yeah. I guess, her emotional state or as they perceive it. Yeah. So let's talk about Diana's role in the story. Well, Diana's role mirrors Jasmine mm-hmm. to some extent, who is sort of a facilitator for other people's power because she's kind of lost and very beautiful and people can project their own dreams onto her and that's what people did with Diana and that's what Stephen does with Jasmine and I think ultimately I mean I think I say it somewhere in the book some version of that Diana was a bit fucked up and had a big heart 
and that that's a really powerful mm, powerful combination. combination it is like it is when you think about your friends in your life and it certainly was writ large you know on this icon We'll come back to Jasmine in yeah. a while, but let's talk about Stephen first of all. So yeah. Stephen's, uh, it's a first-person narration, but yeah. he's narrating the story from... Stephen aspires in the story to be a fashion designer. Yeah. He's narrating it from a position in the future where he, as we gradually perceive, he has become a successful yeah. designer. Yeah. And I want to talk about why you, why you chose to position him like that. To have him looking back yes. like that. Because, again, coming from this point of view that I wanted to write a book where people are okay in the end and you know to have that kind of optimism and I wanted you to know as the reader that while you were going through these terrible things with him that he was okay and that he stayed alive and that he made it and that he got what he deserved and this sort of idea that what you deserve is being held for any of us what any of us who are basically decent humans what you deserve is being held in escrow for you. Tell us some more about who Stephen is then. Stephen is a young East End Jewish kid who says he's not sure whether he's gay or not yet but we know before he does that he is and I had thought a little bit about um, Bruce Oldfield the 80s designer who was a Bernardo's boy it's obviously sort of eternally quite interesting when someone comes into the world of high money and high glamour and high power from a very different place in the hierarchy and then you know that's capote as well how do you not become a court jester for the uber wealthy and how do you preserve your extreme talent you know i've always been very interested in in capote and how someone with that level of talent allowed himself to essentially be a court jester to rich people when he had so much more to offer the world than they did so this is steve my my boy steven somehow instinctively, self-protectively, not being Capote, like having his talent and running with it and getting out. Let's talk about his his family as well. So he's extremely close to his mother yeah. um, and they, they are both sort of living under the shadow of their extremely violent father. Yeah. In fact, it's an act of violence of his father that basically kicks off the, yeah. the plot of the story. Yeah. Um, and I was interested in, in this idea that you talk about that his mother is almost putting up with it because... It's not um, as bad as the Holocaust. Yeah, or well, well, actually, so that comes from a real place. So, that, so we we are aware of this concept of um, inherited pain and pain that's pain that's sense memory that's passed through generations. Um, for example, um, there is a whole academic theory that the reason traditionally African Americans don't like swimming to learn how to swim is a, a sense memory of of the Middle Passage of slavery. And in research I had done, I had found that there's an interesting amount of children of Holocaust survivors who ended up in abusive marriages. So that's interesting to me is is the different flavors of pain and the, the ways you play it out and recreate it to, I guess, try and make it in your own image safer. How does this affect the relationship between Stephen and his mother then? Um, Well, so, you know, I'm a parent now and it's my understanding that one of the worst things you can do to your kid is make them feel like they have to parent you. So that's what I was playing with in the book is, is that she has to break free so that he doesn't have to become her parent. And 
the wider family, um, there's a, a couple of aunties. Like yeah. you mentioned, that obviously he comes from a, a poor Jewish East End background yeah. and wants to break out into the, you know, into the clothing trade. Yeah. But he comes from the clothing yeah, trade as well. One he's family ashamed business. of, yeah. yeah, until Jasmine goes there with him and says, this is really interesting. You know, and I think a lot of us have had that experience of an outsider taking you back into where you come from and going, you're, you're wrong to dismiss this. There's something here, you know, that he's embarrassed by the ritual of, of people who are actually religious Jews. Um, and I have come as I've gotten older, to think there's something very beautiful about religious ritual. I don't really mind which religion. I just think ritual is a very beautiful thing, especially for an artist. And it's a way of safekeeping, I think. Um, to what extent are these, I mean, I'm particularly thinking of, of the aunties and yeah. that background based on y- your own memories. Yeah, very much so. That, that Those are basically my aunties. We, we had family in, in, the, in this business, in the early lingerie, you know, corset business. I think some of their pieces actually have ended up in the V&A. But, um, yeah, those are aunties from my family who are no longer with us and who I have really early child. It's just, this is a book of my early childhood memories and I've just sort of extrapolated on that all and, and made a novel from those acorns, yeah. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Emma Forrest and we're talking about her novel Royals. And so let's go back to Jasmine. Yeah. So tell us who she is. Well, the first thing you'd notice about Jasmine is that she is extraordinarily beautiful. So beautiful that she's able to experiment in a way that less beautiful people can't. I, as I was saying to you, this is sort of early memory stuff and I, and I remember Susie Sue really well and I remember it took getting a bit older to really look at that face and go, my God, that's an amazing face. That's like a sort of silent film star face and, and all that makeup and hair and look wouldn't have had the power it had if there wasn't a version where she could have just been like a traditionally beautiful woman. That's really really fascinating I think to me is when there's a level of beauty that gives you a freedom that the rest of us don't have I think that's also Gloria Steinem mm-hmm. like it's not a coincidence that she's super beautiful like I assume Gloria Steinem probably looks in the mirror less than the rest of us because she was so stunning she was able to pass as a playboy bunny to go undercover and expose the bunnies so I think there's a, a power there in traditional beauty that just you're thinking you're, you're weirdly less vain. So there's a little Gloria Steinem in there too, actually. Like I think there's less vanity when you're when you're Debbie Harry. You know, that's why Debbie Harry took like literally took trash bags out of the trash and made dresses out of them. I wouldn't do that, you know. But when you look like she did, you can. There's a magic there. So that's the first thing you'd notice about her. When you got to know her, you'd find out she's an heiress. I had this experience when. I first moved to New York when I was like 20 or 21. I had met a shop girl in London working in one of my favourite sort of punky clothes boutiques that was in a basement in Soho. And I said I was moving to New York. She's like, oh, you have to look me up when you get to New York. You know, I live there. And I did. And when I got to her house, having had her at my house, I think she'd stayed at my awful, you know, studio apartment. I got to her place and she was an heiress, like a major, 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 you know, one of the top five companies in the world, heiress. And, you know, there's things that those people are working to cover. And then there's other times that they want to uh, flaunt it and exploit it. I remember all the times that she'd want to take a taxi and so would take a taxi and she'd say, I haven't been to a cash machine. Can you get this one? And like that it was a drama for me to do that, but I didn't want to say that. So that's a little of Stephen and Jasmine too. And I want to talk about her relationship with, well, I guess both her father, yeah. who is present sometimes, yeah. and and her mother, who, who casts a great presence across the book, even though she's no longer there. Yeah, the mother is some um, sort of... In, you know, Victorian Gothic, she'd be the first Mrs. De Wind. She's the mad woman in the attic. And, yeah, that's a deliberate shadow. But I also really like off-screen characters. You get them a lot in sitcoms. Like, I loved um, Lilith, you never saw in Cheers. You, you know, hardly ever. But she was so present. She terrified him. Frasier. And so there's something of that to the mum is just like the power of a, of a really well-rounded off-screen character and her dad is someone who is doing the best that he can that is the best that he can do he is not a present supportive father he comes and goes as he pleases but when you say about someone they're doing the best that they can this is the best that he can do and I think as a writer I try to feel compassion for that he has his own damage that we go into a little bit in the book 
Um, I was also reminded of, and you do mention her towards the beginning of the book, um, Jasmine, sort of as an aside, but Diana's mother as well. Yeah. Yeah. Did I? Did I mention that? Because this book was written in such a fever dream. I wrote it over three months that some people have been sending me some of their favourite lines. I do not remember writing them at all. Yeah, I have definitely found that my best work that I like the best of mine is written really fast over a very short period of time. So forgive me, but there's definitely thing I didn't I, I If I put Diana's mother in there, I'm smart. So good. Thank you. <laughs> and through Jasmine, you know, you know, you explore sort of ideas of, you know, depression. She's attempted suicide a number of times. Mm-hmm. She's she's a self-harmer. And, and, and this is stuff that you've written about yourself mm. both in 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 mm. memoirs and and in essays and stuff and yeah. and I wanted to talk about writing about those sort of things in fiction yeah. versus non-fiction as which you've you've also done yeah i mean i i yeah it was noted in in a review that i was sent that you know this is to some extent ground i've covered in every book and i'm fine with that and i sort of feel like isn't that what every author does women basically get every novelist that. writes the same book over and over yeah, again yeah i can not the idea? completely live with having a theme that i explore over and over and i mean oh my god tennessee williams had the same theme over and over and over in a really beautiful way actually you know i when i moved back to london last year um, God, what's it called? Uh, not Smoke and Mirror. It was an early Tennessee Williams play. I'm completely blanking. It was so brilliant, but it was also clearly kind of an early draft of Streetcar. So hopefully I'm just kind of perfecting what I started in the first novel that I wrote when I was 19. So, I mean, you just mentioned about the, the speed of this novel. Mm. Also, like, I want to talk about the film a little bit towards mm. towards the end and, mm. and you talked about how having directed a film mm. um you've also written screenplays but having that particularly directed that film yeah has, has sort of changed your perspective on on novel writing yeah. so tell us something more about how this how this book came together um well actually this book came together because um i was having a really hard time editing my movie in that i i was having a very serious sort of legal disagreement with a couple of the producers about the edit and uh, those guys. Um, I had one producer who was my guy, um, Scott Lestati, who, you know, just like an angel and a protector. But there are a couple of the others who I had a really tricky time with and they locked me out of the editing room for months and months, months. And I could have just sat there going oh my God, am I ever going to get to finish my film? And so that I didn't just have to sit with that distress. I wrote a novel while I waited for this um, battle to be resolved and to be allowed to go back in and finish my film. So that's quite strange, I guess, to write a novel sandwiched by a movie, but that's how it went. And it did, the, the whole film was, a, I mean, you, you, we don't have to go into it here, but you wrote a long article for The Guardian yeah. recently about yeah. other difficulties yeah. that you experienced while making that yeah. film. And so that experience itself, that filmmaking, I mean, is, is, is there another film on the horizon? Is it, does that put you off filmmaking no, forever? No, not or? at all, not at all. It's just really hard to get um, financing for the kind of stories that I want to tell, which is, yeah, yeah, they want, they're saying that they want female leads, but they always say they want strong female leads and I want weak female leads. And by, by that, what I mean is, well, where's the female Travis Bickle? Like, where's the, the broken 
damaged, slightly delusional, doing their best and their best is is not that great. I loved Wonder Woman, but that wasn't the film I was trying to make. So the financing was really, really tough. Um, I didn't really mean anything. And weirdly, no matter how, if you're not in the business, no matter how much you may think someone's famous, they generally don't mean anything in terms of financing. So between me, um, Jemima Kirk and Lola Kirk, we just, we didn't mean enough. And anytime you see an indie film and wonder why is a gigantic star doing, you know, two scenes, that's the only way to get the financing. So yeah, I'd love to make the next one. um, But for now, I'm adapting Royals as television. Just to finish off, and then I'll I'll get you to to read a bit of Royals, if you would. Um, If you'd perhaps talk about some other, I mean, writers that are both an influence on on your writing, not necessarily just this book, but everything, but just any other things that you've been reading recently that you've enjoyed? Um, Well, I've always loved Muriel Spark. I love that. I mean, to come back to this idea that we all have a theme that we go to over and over, I, I, I would say hers is Transfiguration. And I couldn't think of a more delicious topic to come back to over and over. Um, I'd love to adapt The Girls of Slender Means. I think as, t- as TV, maybe as a movie, um, I really, really love her work. I love the spareness of it, um, the precision. Uh, I hate overwriting. I hate books that I... I've read a few books in the last year that I just don't understand why they didn't choose which book to write. You know, it's like three books in... In one, so I'm always um, more excited by a short book that I think is a masterpiece than a long book that's a masterpiece. To me, that's even more of an achievement. So I love My Name Is Lucy Barton, um, which is you know just such a slender book. Um, I love uh, Department of Speculation. I really love Deborah Levy, who I didn't mm-hmm. discover until I moved back to London a year ago, and then I was just like I was hungry for her like a lover like I just couldn't get enough and I was so distraught when I thought that the last one had finished but thank god she's very prolific and so there was immediately a new one like three months later she's my favorite writer in this country for sure can I get you to read us a bit of yeah sure okay thank you so this is important is that the quote at the front of the book is nothing is a mistake there's no win and no fail there's only make that sister Carita Kent, who's a very interesting um, sort of counterculture nun who's worth looking up. I, I know she recently had an exhibition at the Design Museum in King's Cross. Okay, chapter one. Mum had black hair and red nails with half moons, and the glamour of her extremities was highlighted by the fact that she rarely wore anything other than a tracksuit. She was decades ahead of the velour craze. She had me do her nails that morning because she was too nervous to do it herself and the moon, the part at the base of the nail where there is negative space, was both difficult to get right and highly important to her. If the moon was wrong, her day was wrong, like it dictated the pull of her tides. Right after I'd finished, I had to redo them for her because she'd anxiously touched her hair, leaving slender trails of red on black and pattern in the polish of her fingers where there should be only shine. I found it difficult the way my mother was vibrating with excitement as if we were witnessing the greatest love story of all time when the poor bride was obviously marrying him because she didn't have anywhere else to be. Mum had been baking a massive wedding cake for them, in parts, over the week, going through pans and tracksuits as her efforts intensified. 
It was like tuning into one of her beloved miniseries, the way she spaced out the cliffhanger moments in the life of the wedding cake. When she asked me to help her, I gratefully did, ready to be made a fuss of again after so much focus on the bride-to-be. I designed the iced rosettes, alternating lilac between deep red roses. Mum looked at it and said, you are so brilliant. She was also proud of my illustrations, my skill with the sewing machine, my skill with taking out the rubbish, the luxuriance of my hair, my gentleness with animals, my bread-toasting abilities, my ability to name Elizabeth Taylor's husbands in the correct order, and the temperature at which I drew baths. Now we stood before the cake like five-year-olds admiring a tinsel tree. Even my two brothers were in the spirit, accidentally telling me it looked great, when usually all they ever said to me was, are you a sissy? or if they wanted to be more inclusive, typical women. They got shoved at school for being yids, and they shoved me for being a sissy and mum for being a typical woman, rolling their eyes at her, exasperated at all she did for them, resentful when it took too long for her to do it. You don't have to guess who they learned it from. So I've been talking to Emma Forrest. We've been talking about her latest novel, Royals, which is out in the UK from Bloomsbury. Emma, thank you so much for sharing it with me. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.